a speedy one from the umlauf. Wasn't expecting that. And what I mean by saying that is you're always so dang long-winded. I'm kidding. I kid so much. Uh, open up to the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 11. Um, we've been looking at on Wednesdays at, uh, I've just been calling it Encounters with Jesus. And tonight's encounter with Jesus is probably one of the most encouraging in the Bible, uh, to me at least. Um, tonight's encounter with Jesus is, honestly, it's, it gives me hope when I expect my life to be going one way and it's actually going another. Uh, this encounter gives me peace uh, when putting my absolute trust that Jesus is, is with me, He's for me, um, and that He's going to design everything for my good. When that seems to be like a distant memory at times or it seems to be a little bit cloudy, um, this particular encounter uh, is very comforting. And so maybe you're there, maybe you've been there, maybe you're about to be there, where you're just having a hard time uh, sensing God's presence in your life, and things maybe aren't going well for you in some regards. Um, and we're going to look tonight in Matthew 11 at John the Baptist's encounter with Jesus from a lonely, cold jail cell. And we're going to talk about how that applies to us and why it's so comforting to encounter Jesus uh, in that way. So let me read that text, uh, just the first six verses of chapter 11. And then we're going to pray that the Holy Spirit makes sense of it for us and apply it um, to our, our lives. Verse 1, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. It's an interesting story. Let's pray and uh, talk about it. Father, we are grateful that you've given us your word. Um, you are a holy God who has given us the truth. We don't have to wonder what is true. We have it. Um, and yet, Lord, as Jim prayed, we need help to decipher many times what is true because we feel many things that might seem real. We see many things that might seem real, but they might not necessarily be true. So, Lord, would you remove distractions from us tonight, whatever season that we're in, if it's one of plenty or if it's one of want or loneliness or anxiety or heartache or whatever it may be, will you minister your word to us in a way that only your Holy Spirit can. We love you. We ask these things only in Christ's name. Amen. Um, so when I was in college, uh, me and a few buddies decided to go on a little ski trip uh, over one of our Christmas breaks. Uh, we pulled together some money. Uh, we decided where we would go, and so we loaded in a van and decided to head to Paoli Peaks. Now, that might sound really, you know, exotic and sexy to you. Oh, Paoli Peaks, yeah, I've been there. No, 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 it's in Indiana. Um, it's basically, you know, like where we go in St. Louis, which is like a golf course in the summer, but it's like way worse. Like that place is way better. This is literally like a, a, a hill um, and a lot of fake 
I don't, I'm not going to call it snow. I'm not going to give it that credit. We're going to call it ice, okay? But we wanted to get out of town. We had a few days, so we were going to go to Paoli Peaks. It was cheap. That's what we could do. So we load up, and me, a few college dudes. So what we had to do beforehand, obviously, is find a place to stay. So we get online, and we look at what's the nearest city to this. Has anyone ever heard of French Lick, Indiana? What famous athlete is from French Lick? I want to know. Yeah, thank you, Larry Bird, excellent. So that's the city that we're in. So, you know, we do what you do. We got online and put, where are we going to stay? So we're looking for hotels. And we come across this hotel, uh, and the name of the hotel was Michael T's. I kid you not, the name of the hotel was Michael T's. We're like, okay, kind of sounds exotic. Yeah, let's check it out. So we get on, we check out the pictures. Uh, we check out the kind of promotional commentary. It's like, oh, has a hot tub? Oh, yeah this place looks pretty good. Now, the price of the room, I won't tell you, that probably should have given away what it was going to be, but we were like, this place actually looks pretty nice. It's like close to the local attractions in French Lick, Indiana. It's a good spot. It looks really nice. The pictures at least make it look that way, so we book it, and we get there, and let me just say that our expectations were blown out of the water. Um, like in the worst possible way, not the best possible way. The worst possible, I'm telling you, the hotel lobby, legitimately we walked in, it was this dude's bedroom. Literally, it was his bedroom. It's like lobby, like with, you know, a, 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 like a piece of notebook paper with a Sharpie. Lobby, we walk in, a dude is like literally laying on his couch watching like ALF. We're like, what is this? It was unbelievable. It was basically like, uh, kind of a large house, and I, I can promise, I'm still 100% convinced that our room that we were in had previously been used for a couple of different things. One, a makeshift meth lab. I know it was used for that at some point. Um, I know it had to be, it was a crime scene in some way, probably a murder scene. Uh, I know. Uh, maybe a brothel even. I'm telling you, there were some questionable things going on. And I know that it had been featured frequently on, on Cops. Like, I know that, that that room had been on that TV show. So we get there, and I mean, we are kind of half laughing our heads off, half going, sweet, we're going to get murdered tonight. Like, this is how it ends for us. That's awesome. We're going to die in French Lick, Indiana. That's great. But I'm telling you, this place online, it really looked okay. And we looked, it's like, whoa, this looks pretty nice. We get there, and I'm telling you, it was just awful. And I think about that, what kind of rocked our world was that we expected something. We had expectations, and those expectations were totally different from our experience once we got there. We had a picture that was drawn in our mind, and then as the circumstances unfolded, that picture was shattered. Well, that's what I want to talk about tonight, and that's why I'm looking at this text with John the Baptist. When our expectations of Jesus, of God, of life, when our expectations don't match our experiences, we panic. We all have expectations, whether you know it or not. You have expectations about how life is supposed to look and feel and go. And sometimes when those expectations don't match what's happening to us, what's happening around us, we panic. Uh, for me personally, do you, know, do you want to know when God feels most distant? Um, when I feel alone or afraid or worried, uh, when my faith sometimes feels more like a, like a heavy backpack to manage rather than this joyful you know, vehicle that's designed to, to get me into a vibrant relationship with Jesus, you know when it feels like that? It's when my expectations aren't met. 
It's when I have a set of plans and, and a set of expectations that looks like this, and then, and then God has some that are different. You know, when my expectations are, I have a plan, and that plan's going to go like this. And in the midst of my plan going like this, it's not going to include uh, pain, uh, confusion, uh, anxiety, uh, hurt, uh, or struggle. It's not going to include that. But then we hold that up. We hold that expectation that we all bring to the table. We hold it up to, to reality, to our experiences, that oftentimes does include pain, confusion, anxiety, hurt, struggle, and we're just lost. We doubt. We call things that we've long believed or said or tweeted into question. Man, I really felt that at Colorado. I, I, I was singing my guts out. I really believed that. But now it doesn't feel like that. What's very encouraging and comforting about this text is that John the Baptist got this. He understood this. Now, I'm telling you, this is what's so unbelievably, mind-blowingly refreshing about Scripture. It just gives us the real story. It just shoots us straight. Now, I want you to wrap your head around this scene. John the Baptist is in jail, okay? And he's no, he knows what's coming. If you, if you were to flip a couple of pages to the, to the right in, in Matthew 14, do it when you get home. Read about how John the Baptist was beheaded. King, uh, the king asked for his head on a platter, and, th- and that happened. He know, he's in jail awaiting his death. And so he hears that Jesus is, is out there doing things, and in essence what he does is he doubts. He goes, hey, guys, will you go and find him, and will you ask him if he's the one, or should we look for another Messiah? Because uh, my life is not going well. I really had different expectations of what being like one of Jesus' homeboys was going to look like. Surely something's going wrong. Can you go find him and ask him, have I missed it? Is there another one? He's doubting, and I love that. You know why I love that? Of anybody, this guy is going to know exactly who Jesus is and what he's up to. I mean, he was appointed even in the womb. It says he was jumping up and down in the womb. He was so excited about Jesus. He's, in, he's appointed to be this great trailblazer for Jesus. And when Jesus comes, I mean, he's roaming the countryside, preaching his guts out, calling people to repentance, saying the kingdom of God is near, saying this is what you need to do. He is so excited. He even baptized Jesus. You remember that? John the Baptist baptized the Savior of the world. He saw a dove descend on Jesus, the Spirit filling him. He heard God the Father saying, this is my son of whom I'm well pleased. He was there for that. If there's anyone in Scripture who shouldn't doubt, it's going to be John the Baptist. And yet, what does he do? He doubts. You want to know why that's comforting to me? Because it gives me the space. It gives me the permission. It gives me the room to wrestle, to struggle, to go, I know what's true. I know what's true, but gosh, it doesn't feel true right now. Jesus, are you sure you're with me? Are you sure you haven't missed it? If John the Baptist can do that, then so can I. And he's doing it because his life circumstance, it doesn't match his expectations. And so his dreams kind of shatter. 
I got two pretty quick points for you. First is this, genuine doubt from a frail human. And that's what John the Baptist was. You know, a lot of the times we think of Bible characters as being like superheroes. Like we, we kind of, we know they existed, you know, but they're like, they're superhuman. They're, they're like comic book characters, right? Well, that's not, that's not true. I mean, they were, liter- they were like us. They might not know what in the world an iPhone, you know, was, but they're like us. They share emotions and feelings and experiences and relationships like us. John the Baptist was not superhuman. He wasn't a machine. I mean, he thought things. He felt things. And like all of us, he was affected by his surroundings. He was affected by his circumstances. You know, think about where he is when he asks this question, when he's doubting Jesus. Jesus, are, are you the one? I mean, just tell me if not, if we need to look for another who's going to do it right. Because right, according to me, would be me not being in jail. I mean, I'm the one who's been faithful. You, you said for those who repent, there's blessing. And for those who don't, there's judgment. I've repented. I've preached in your name. And yet I'm in jail. So something is missing here. Think about where he, he's in jail. He's hurting. Things are not going well in his life. He can point tangibly to circumstances to go, this really sucks. So obviously, naturally, he's going to think that something in the plan has gone wrong. And that's what we do in our natural states, right? When our eyes are down here, when they're focused down here and and not above, we're going to feel things, our circumstances, our surroundings are going to affect what we believe and how we think. You see, John's expectations had to have been something close to this, I would imagine. Wow, what a high calling. You know, God has appointed me to be the, the great pre-runner for Jesus. I'm, this, I'm like one of the greatest preachers. I'm, I'm the last of the prophets. And I got appointed that even when I was not yet born. That's a pretty high calling. So I'm going to go and I'm going to preach that this Jesus is coming with fire, with judgment, with power, uh, with a sword. The, 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 he says something at one point where he says the axe uh, is, is at the root already of the tree. It's like Jesus is there. You better repent because it's about to get real. He's got the axe at the root of the tree. He's going to swing at any moment. So repent. And he's got to be thinking, I'm going to see that happen in my lifetime. What, what, what I've known to be true, what I'm preaching, I'm going to see it happen. And, and I'm probably going to be a big part of that. I mean, I'm in the inner circle. I'm going to see that. I'm going to experience that. At no point would John have written into his story this, you know, this history-altering, world-changing calling. At no point would he have written in, All this good stuff's going to happen. It's probably going to end with me in a damp, dark jail cell um, with my head on a platter. At no point would he have written that into his own story. I mean, John had been faithful to his calling, and yet he's in jail. His expectations of how God uh, was going to use him and what that would look like and what what that would feel like were beginning to crumble. And the result was he doubted. He was frail. And he was human. And guys, so are we. We're frail. I mean, we, we trick ourselves a lot into thinking that we're self-sustaining, you know, wealthy Americans who make stuff happen. But we're not. We're really weak. 
I mean, physically we're weak, emotionally we're weak, our faith is even weak. And don't we do what he did? Don't we do what John the Baptist did? I mean, when God's plan and our plan seem to be in the same ballpark, then we're good with this faith deal. Man, yeah, it's all happy. Mike's place, the good stuff. Woo, trips. When God's plan and our plan, they seem to be in the same ballpark, we're like, yes, he's for me. Yay, God's sovereignty. You know, I want to be healthy. I don't want cancer. God wants me to be healthy. All right, cool. We're on the same page there. I don't want to be lonely. You know, I either want to have a lot of friends or I want to be in a relationship. God, are you cool with that? All right, God wants me to be in a relationship. God doesn't want to be lonely. All right, we're doing good. God wants like happy, easy family stuff. I want happy, easy family stuff. All right, we're, we're tracking here. This is good. This is good. I want to get into the school I want to get into. God, are you cool? All right, sweet. This is good. But then at some point when God's story kind of jettisons from this one that we've been comfortably and ignorantly writing for ourselves, when there's a split, we're so quick to jump ship. Whoa, 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 God, uh, what are you doing here? I didn't sign up for that. I didn't sign up to, to switch schools and my world kind of be rocked. We, we were cool when we were on the same path. I didn't sign up for that breakup. Uh, I didn't see that coming, and I'm and, and sorry, that's, that, that, that wasn't the plan. I didn't sign up for my parents to fight all the time or to get divorced and me have to do this weird split time and all that. It's not what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for cancer at 20. And so we doubt. And these expectations that we have that have either been spoken or unspoken, they meet reality, they meet our real-life experiences, and we do what he did. We doubt. Jesus, are you really in control? Jesus, are you really uh, for me? Are you really there? Are you really the one? John's great expectations weren't turning out so great. So in his confusion, his pain, his crushed dreams... He doubts. Now, that's scary, right? Because surely Jesus is angry at that. Surely he goes, are you kidding me? Are you, are you kidding me? You've seen me do stuff. You baptized me. You saw a dove land on my head and the Holy Spirit of God enter me. And are you kidding me? You moron. Yet that's not how our Savior reacts at all in this encounter. And that's my second point, gentle affirmation from a kind Savior. Jesus doesn't get mad. He doesn't shame John. He simply affirms him. He simply does this. Hey, have your disciples, uh, I'm going to have John's disciples, you know, kind of his team stay. And, and I want you to observe what I'm doing. I want you to observe who I am. And what he's doing there in verse 5 and 6, you know, when it says, oh, the, the lame are being healed, the blind are seeing, the deaf are hearing. What he's doing is he's showing John, hey, I'm fulfilling all these prophecies that have been said about me for a long time that I know you believe. All of these things in the Old Testament, all of these prophecies that say the Messiah is going to do this, he's going to do that, he's going to do that, he's going to do that. Hey, just go tell John that I'm doing those things. Just go tell John that it's, it's happening. And, and, and what he says in that is this. What he's saying by not getting angry. Are you kidding? Are you an idiot? You're a preacher. You've been preaching for me. You better. 
How do you not know? Why would you ask that question that's so insulting? Instead of getting angry, he just gently meets him, gently affirms him. And what he does, what he's saying is this. John, I get it. I, I know it might seem like it. I haven't forgotten judgment. That, that's, that's still coming. Just now's not the time. John, I understand why you would be scared. I understand why you would doubt. I understand why you think I've missed it. I understand that it just doesn't make sense where you're at right now. I understand why you doubt me, but I want to help you see. Guys, let that be a point of application for you. This is what John did right. Here's what John did right. He didn't try to get it all together and go, well, I I feel like this and I'm going to die in a jail cell when I want to be out there doing this thing, so I'm just going to fake it. What John does right is this. He talked to Jesus. He never stopped talking. He didn't understand. He was scared. He was hurting. But he didn't stop talking to Jesus. And that's where so many of us go wrong. I think that's where I go wrong. The first time the game doesn't work out the way I want it to, I take my ball and I go home. And I pout. And I wallow. And yet that's not what we're called to do. God calls me to a patient Sometimes painfully slow, wait and trust. He calls me to remember the promises in in this book. He calls me to recount his past faithfulness to me. I want to close with a story. This is a story. Do you all know who Elizabeth Elliot is? Elizabeth Elliot, her husband, was a famous missionary who was martyred um, in, in the Amazon and she continued to be a missionary there for many years in the 60s. Um, remarkable story. Get, get, get to know her. She's uh, amazing. She died this year, actually. Uh, anyway, she wrote a book uh, in the 60s, I believe, called No Graven Image. This is out of Tim Keller's Walking with God Through Pain and Suffering. Total sidebar, but unbelievable book. If you have been, it's deep. It's really deep. But, uh, oh, it's just so good. Uh, anyway. She wrote a book called No Graven Image, and uh, it's the story of this young, unmarried woman named Margaret Sparhawk. And what Margaret did is she dedicated her life to translating the Bible for remote people, people groups. She waited. She knew she wanted to be a missionary, waited and waited and waited for years and years and trained and all that. And she really felt the Lord calling her um, to the, uh, the Kuchia people uh, of the mountains of Ecuador. So she, it's very clear. God opens this door. He's called me to go and translate the Bible, put it into their language so they have the Bible. And she was a nurse so she could do some medical work while she's there. So she waits and waits and raises support, and she's just so thankful. Finally, God calls her to that, and, and, and the, the, she meets a man uh, amongst this people group who's the only one who kind of understands her and can help her translate the Bible. His name is Pedro. So Pedro is very important to her whole mission, her whole endeavor. So she forms a, a friendship with him and, and, and his family. And so what happens is one day she's going up to meet Pedro. She's just praying on the way, thanking God. This is what she said. Um, you know I've waited a long time to be a missionary to mountain Indians. You seem to say translation and medical work, so you gave me Pedro. Just being here today is an answer to prayer. And she thinks of all that it's taken to bring her to where she's at, the support of friends, financial help from many years of training, years of building relationships, and, of course, the provision of the one man who knew both Spanish and the dialect that she needed. God now seemed to be bringing things together. Margaret imagines the possibility of bringing the Bible to a million people in remote regions of the mountains. So she's going up, and when she gets to Pedro, she finds that Pedro is actually very sick. 
She's a nurse, so she knows a few things. And he had actually asked her, um, can you give me some penicillin? It was a painful wound in his leg, so she, of course, so she gives him uh, an injection of penicillin, and what happens is he was apparently, you know, allergic or something to it. It says, Pager begins to experience anaphylaxis, which is a severe whole-body allergic reaction to the penicillin. So, in essence, what she's just done, unknowingly, she's, she's just injected death into him. So, with his whole family gathered around, he starts writhing in unbelievable pain and is dying before their very eyes. I mean, she's built years and years of this work up, and the one man who's needed to accomplish this task, and the one man who's so important to this family, obviously, important to this village, she's watching him die, and they're all looking at her screaming and yelling, going, you're killing him, you're killing him. She's crying out to God, going, God, what are you doing? You, you sent me here, you know what I'm coming to do. How are you allowing me to kill this guy? She's crying out, she's praying, she's praying, Lord, remember, remember, there's no one else. And yet, Pedro dies. Pedro dies, she obviously knows that her work there is over. Here's what I want you to read. This is Elizabeth's commentary on it. The book ends with a profoundly confused young missionary. There's no last-minute reversal, no silver lining. She stands at Pedro's grave and thinks, And God, what of him? I am with thee, he had said. With me in this? He had allowed Pedro to die, or, and I could not then, nor can I today, deny the possibility. He had perhaps caused me to destroy him. Does he now know? I asked myself there at the graveside, does he expect me to worship him? Elizabeth Elliot points out the most important line of the book. It's on the last page, and she says this. This is Margaret talking after that terrible, terrible thing. God, if he was merely my accomplice, had betrayed me. If, on the other hand, he was God, he had freed me. She went on to explain to us that the graven image, the idol of the title, of missionary, nurse, Bible translator, was a God who always acted the way we thought he should. Or more to the point, he was a God who supported our plans, how we thought the world and history should go. This is a God of our own creation, a counterfeit God. Such a God is really just a projection of our wisdom, of our own self. In that way of operating, God is our accomplice, someone to whom we relate to as long as he's doing what we want. If he does something else, we want to fire him or unfriend him as we would any personal assistant or acquaintance who was insubordinate or incompetent. Almost done. Tune in. But at the very end, Margaret realizes that the demise of her plans had shattered her false god. And now she was free for the first time to worship the true one. When serving the god of my plans, she had been extraordinarily anxious. I want you to hear that again. When serving the God of my plans, she had been extraordinarily anxious. She had never been sure that God was going to come through for her and get it right. She was always trying to figure out how to bring God to do what she had planned. But she had not really been treating him as God, as the all-wise, all-good, all-powerful one. Now she had been liberated to put her hope not in her agendas and her plans, but in God himself. If she could make this change, it would bring a rest and security she had never had. In short, last thing, this is what I want you to get. In short, suffering 
had pointed her to a glorious God and it had taught her to treat him as such. And when she did so, it freed her from her desperate, doomed, exhausting effort to seek to control all the circumstances of her life and of those that she loved. Guys, that points us to exactly what Paul says in 2 Corinthians when he says, look, it seems tough and it seems hard right now, but the affliction that you're in is light. It's momentary compared to the weight of glory of what I'm up to, what I'm preparing you for. Listen, in this life, there's going to be a lot of things that don't make sense. We're not owed that. We're not owed a nice, tidy little story wrapped in a bow that's clean and comfortable and it makes sense. But we can know, even when we can't feel, we can know that the one who left riches immeasurable to become a homeless man, to sympathize with your weakness and suffer in our place, we can know that he's working all things together for our good, for those of us who are called according to his purpose. We can know that even when we don't feel it. John the Baptist was not feeling it. But he talked to Jesus and Jesus gently affirmed him with true things and then he knew. So my question is, do you know? I'm not asking how your life is right now. I'm not asking even what you feel right now. I'm asking, do you know? Let me pray. Father, we are people who chase after many false gods. And a lot of the times it's scary because they look close to you. But if we have been using you as an accomplice to get ultimately what we want, that is a, that's a counterfeit God. It's a made-up God. That's not you. You are God, which means you are call the shots you are writing the story and even when it feels hard even when it feels heavy even when it doesn't make sense or will you give us the ability to know what is true how encouraging to to look at a brother who's one of us who walked with you talked with you baptized you saw you heard you and yet even he when life got hot, when it got hard, even he struggled to believe. Lord, will you help our unbelief? We love you. We ask these things only in Christ's name. Amen. Love you guys. Have a good week, and I hope to see you Sunday. Peace out.